You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. On a beautiful fall morning nearly a decade ago, like hundreds of mornings before and since, I dropped off one of my children at school. Michaela, then five years old, had just started first grade, and the playground chatter among both the children and their parents reflected that mix of nervous unfamiliarity and comforting reconnection that marks the beginning of the school year. I lingered in the schoolyard until Michaela lined up with her teacher and classmates. She wore a pretty purple dress that my mother had just sent her, white socks, and pink and white checkered sneakers. A hairband exposed her hopeful, eager, beautiful face. I sneaked in a last hug, as impulsive dads are wont to do, before she disappeared into the building. The time was about 8.40 a.m. As I left the schoolyard and began to head toward the subway and home to Brooklyn, I heard a thunderous, unfamiliar roar overhead. As the noise grew louder and closer, I froze in an instinctive crouch, much like the rats we always read about in scientific experiments on fear, wondering where the sound was coming from, knowing only that it was ominously out of the ordinary. Moments later, a huge shadow with metal wings passed directly over my head, like some prehistoric bird of prey. I instantly recognized it as a large, twin-engine commercial airliner, but nothing in my experience prepared me for what happened next. I watched for the endless one, two, three, four seconds it took for this shiny man-made bird to fly directly into the tall building that I faced several blocks away. In real time, I watched a 395,000-pound airplane simply disappear. Almost immediately, black smoke began to curl out of the cruel, grinning incision its wings had sliced in the facade of the skyscraper. In moments when life's regular playbook flies out the window, when the ground shifts beneath our feet in a literal or figurative earthquake, we feel a surge of adrenalized fear at the shock of the unexpected. But right behind that feeling comes the struggle to make sense of the seemingly senseless, to try to understand what has just happened and what it means so that we will know how to think about a future that suddenly seems uncertain and unpredictable. In truth, the future is always unpredictable which is why these moments of shock remind us with unusual urgency that we have a constant, if often unconscious, need for wisdom, too. Stephen S. Hall writes about science and society for the New York Times Magazine. He's the author of Invisible Frontiers and Emergence of Immortality. His new book is Wisdom from Philosophy to Neuroscience. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. My pleasure to be here. Stephen, one of the things that strikes me about that opening passage in your book is the way you describe yourself as cowering like rats in a maze. And I get this kind of uh, confluence of fear and science and wisdom. Um, I'm not sure about the wisdom part of it, but uh, definitely there was fear and a little bit of science going on in the sense that there was a, uh, a lot of things going on in my brain as I was trying to navigate and figure out what was going on. Uh, I think when something completely unexpected uh, and unfamiliar to our common experience happens, it really throws us for a loop, and, and we just kind of struggle both cognitively and emotionally to kind of figure out what's going on. Well, that's a, a great laboratory experiment for readers. As we read this book, we can go back and visit that opening event, which really, I think, uh, gives us this uh, an idea of some of the poles in the brain that are, that you describe here, and you come up to eight different poles, uh, eight pillars of wisdom. But what, let's talk about first. Um, one of the first things you ask, it's a great question, what is wisdom? And I think one of the things you talk about, I, I like uh, Montaigne's idea of, you know, the, the action bias versus avoiding action. So. Uh, you know, a lot of people sometimes think that wisdom is a perceptual skill, but I think it's actually a perceptual skill that has to be uh, mated to action. In other words, just to simply um, ob observe or interpret or understand things without that ultimately informing action, informing decisions uh, is a sterile kind of wisdom. And I think wisdom has always been about negotiating really different, difficult 
contradictory paradoxical situations that, were, that we face where, where both options in a certain sense are good and you have to sort of navigate between this, uh, this paradox. One of the things you talk about is wisdom as as a process, which I really like that idea. Uh, you know, I talk about this in the book. It's one of the great benefits of this project for me was that I discovered that by reading about wisdom, uh, reading different definitions of it, arguing with those definitions kind of in my head, uh, disputing them, thinking about them, um, bought me the kind of time that we so rarely have the luxury to indulge just to think about uh, decisions I make, um, choices I've made in my life or that I make with my wife or our children, that sort of thing. It, it really, um, thinking about wisdom forced me to kind of interrogate myself about what's truly important in my life um, and having figured out possibly what's important in my life, what decisions would again uh, allow me and allow our family, for example, to you know reach the kind of goals that we decided were important. So it really, uh, it became what I call a kind of armchair form of mindfulness where you begin to think about it, you deliberate, and, and you really bring you know, the power of your brain to play in terms of considering possibilities and options. It's interesting, too, that what you say, you talk about, you know, different personal um, definitions of wisdom. And, you know, wisdom in one context, in one situation, an act may be wise, and in a slightly different context from a slightly different perception, the same act may be very unwise. Um, one of the distinctions, there was a group of psychologists who studied wisdom uh, in Germany in the starting in about the 1980s. Um, and one of the strong distinctions that they drew between in t measures of intelligence and measures of wisdom is that if you're testing for intelligence, there are right answers. If you ask a question, there's a single right answer. And they think that the point they made is that wisdom is different because there are no right answers. And I think what they meant by that is there are right answers in certain situations, but those same responses might be inadequate or incorrect in a different situation. So there's this... Uh, extra dimension of kind of contextuality with wisdom that really uh, makes it even more difficult to achieve. And when you're trying to figure out what is wisdom, one of the questions you ask is, who do we consider wise? Um, and it's interesting to go back and see the people who are who are considered models of wisdom. I mean, the, the names are familiar to all of us, so people like Socrates, um, Jesus Christ, Gandhi, the Buddha, um, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Confucius. Uh, Confucius. Um, there, there's a kind of uh, cultural consensus about people who have exemplified wise behavior, um, and several fa uh, several qualities kind of emerge out of our uh, what we associate with these people. One is a very self-examined. Uh, life in which one, again, is interrogating one's values at, at, uh, at frequent junctures, um, asking what's important. Um, you sense a great uh, commitment to things like compassion and what's considered other-centered thinking where you're concerned about other people as well as yourself. Um, there's a strong, strong component of, of social justice and kind of uh, moral rectitude, uh, the kind of thing that is associated with Gandhi, with uh, more contemporary figures like Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, who are often uh, also considered wise exemplars. Um, so there's certain qualities that, that crop up again and again in in, in these various individuals. A lot of men on that list. Uh, mostly men. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that I talk about uh, and I ponder because I think it's really interesting is why are there, uh, you know, in terms of a cultural definition, why are so few women considered wise? Um, and having given that a little bit of thought, I think that we tend to ascribe wisdom to public figures, even though I think if everyone, all of us, any of us asked ourselves who are the wise figures in our own lives, um, it would not be public figures. It would be private figures. It probably would be family figures. It might be a father or a grandparent, something like this. Um, and I think, or a grandmother or a mother. And uh, I think on that more domestic, day-to-day, um, -day quotidian dealing with problems and overcoming hurdles and adversity, uh, I think women probably exert an enormous amount of wisdom and don't get credit for it. Yeah, I was going to say that in our personal lives, everybody, I, I don't think I know anybody who wouldn't say their mother wasn't wise. 
uh, or their grandparents or uh, grandmother. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you uh, you almost inevitably, especially as you're obviously thinking back as a child or as an adult, but thinking back to your childhood, you know, understand the values that were conferred to you by your parents, by your mother and your father, especially. And uh, those are indelible lessons that we all learn. Um, and if we're lucky and we're attentive, we may have picked up a little bit of wisdom from them. <clears throat> you talk a little bit about um, decision theory which, as you say, works well in controlled situations, but maybe not so much in the real world. Yeah, there's, you know, there's been a lot of uh, public discussion, books, so on, about um, irrational decision-making and this notion that a lot of uh, decisions are driven by the kind of emotional part of the brain. Um, and I think this reflects a substantial... Uh, observation by the neuroscience community probably in just the last 10, perhaps 20 years, that emotion and particularly unconscious thought driven by emotion really uh, uh, has a big say in the kind of decisions we make, the kind of preferences we have, and so on. Uh, so it's it's become recognized that this is a very important uh, uh, force in terms of the decisions we make and choices we make. Now... <clears throat> You talk about the the wise men, some of the wise men in, that we know that are universally acknowledged, uh, Socrates. And one of the things that that Socrates brought into to the picture was the idea that wisdom could be secular, that could be human. So, so explain what you mean by human wisdom. One of the interesting things that a number of philosophers have made the point is that prior to uh, actually a little bit before Socrates, but it's it's kind of attached to the uh, the the period of Homer um, and Hesiod, um, that uh, prior to that human there was no human agency in terms of choice. In other words, everything was determined by fates, by the gods. Um, uh, the gods determined wisdom. Uh, if you were deigned to receive wisdom from a god, uh, that was the, the source and fount of, of, of human wisdom. Um, what Socrates spoke about was something he referred to simply as human wisdom. And it's very easy to read over those words and, and not even ask yourself what he meant by that. But I think the implication was this is not a, these are not received goods, but in fact these are genera- self-generated goods uh, that human agency creates. Now, one of the prime aspects of, of wisdom that, I, that we see repeated again and again is not what we do know, but knowing what we don't know. Um, this idea of limitation, uh, this idea that there are there's only a finite uh, amount of knowledge that we know and that we have to be aware of these limitations, I think is um, a really important uh, component in wisdom. And it was something that um, uh, the psychological community that began to study this in the 1970s and 1980s was really acutely aware of. Uh, I think they understood that uh, a lot of decisions are made and with incomplete knowledge and that uh, we as mortals don't uh, necessarily gather all the information that we necessarily need before we make decisions. So this notion of limitation, um, and not just in knowledge, but also in, in capability, that some, you know, we have to accept some limitations, it gets into the, the, the quality of humility, um, which I also include as a neural pillar of wisdom, although there's probably less neuroscience involved with humility than almost any of the other qualities I talk about. But what's interesting about it is part of humility is being open to receiving new information and possibly contradictory information because uh, it's part and parcel of not thinking you know the answers to everything. And that's actually very important. If you think of wisdom as building up a knowledge base, receptivity to new or contradictory knowledge is really important component in that. Now, I have to ask you, what made you decide to look at, at wisdom as something that could be examined by neuroscience. I mean, it seems to me you put together a, a, a bunch of kind of disparate uh, parts here. Talk about, I mean, your journey to, to decide to write about this. This actually has a very interesting genesis. Um, so uh, I've been writing for the New York Times Magazine since 1981. It's been a very long-term relationship, uh, almost 30 years now. 
Um, in the fall of 2006, my, my editor at the magazine, a woman named Vera Titunic, called up and said, we're doing a special issue on uh, the baby boomer generation growing old. Um, would you like to do a piece for the, for the special issue? And I said, sure, that sounds great. And I said, do you have anything particular in mind? And she said, well, we have heard, um, she didn't have a lot of knowledge, but she said, we have heard that there's uh, research into wisdom. And my initial reaction was my heart kind of sank. <laughs> it wasn't enthusiasm. It was the exact opposite because I, uh, you know, this is my sixth book. Um, I think all of my books and all of my magazine work reflects pretty serious uh, approach to science and the critical thinking that informs science. Um, a lot of hardcore science like molecular biology and genetics and that sort of thing. Um, and wisdom seemed like, first of all, wisdom as an idea seemed very squishy and fuzzy in terms of how you would define it, which you need to do to conduct science. Um, and secondly, it was hard for me to imagine that anyone could do anything seriously empirical uh, in terms of studying it. So um, I was deeply skeptical. In fact, I thought it was kind of laughable. <laughs> Um, however, I've uh, gratefully uh, or thankfully kept an open mind, um, decided to take a look at some of this uh, literature that had been published in the psycholo uh, by psychologists in the 1980s and 1970s. Um, and, you know, a funny thing kind of happened in the process of this. I started reading about things like um, emotional regulation or emotional resilience, um, qualities like moral decision-making, um, how we reach decisions, how we balance the sort of ego gratification of immediate uh, uh, personal needs versus the needs of the group over a delayed period of time, delayed gratification. Uh, and I found it fascinating. And I found that it sort of got me thinking, again, about the decisions I make in my own life and the choices that I've made. Um, and it made me do what I think any writer would like their writing to do, which is to get people to stop and think. And that's what I was starting to do, is stopping and thinking about things. And I thought, this is really an interesting process. And so I want to know more about this, and I want to sort of look at this uh, psychological research a little bit more seriously. Uh, and the more I looked at it, the more intrigued I got. Well, <clears throat> it seems to me that uh, the first thing you did was to admit what you didn't know. Yeah, well, I certainly <laughs> didn't know anything about wisdom when I started started out. Um, the, the psychological school that started doing this work was very interesting. Uh, it kind of grew out of a, a subdiscipline called lifespan developmental psychology for the most part. Um, and it's a school of a psychology that believes that people's uh, thought thinking processes, cognitive and emotional processes change over the course of a lifetime, and that it changes for a variety of reasons, age, but also the cultural milieu in which one grows up, the events like wars, if they were going on at certain times. All these things shape the way we process information and make decisions and so on. Um, and so there's a real longitudinal sense of, of a change over a long period of time. The other thing that was interesting was that the people who were doing this work are quite substantial psychologists. These were not fringe people. So one of them, for example, is Robert Sternberg. He's a past president of the American Psychological Association, uh, was a longtime researcher at Yale University, known mostly for his a theory of intelligence, which he ultimately decided was flawed because it did not take into account wisdom as well, with, with the idea that you could be incredibly smart, but if you were not contributing to a greater social good, um, it really didn't qualify as wisdom, and intelligence kind of fell short of an even higher goal, which he considered wisdom, which is when you're not only bringing these uh, cognitive gifts, these good ideas, the, the drive to bring these ideas into, into uh, fruition, but that they contributed to something made society better, made civilization better. One of the, it, it interests me um, that you, you say at one point, uh, and you're talking about Socrates, that true wisdom can be an act of hostility against society. Well, it occurred to me as I started to go through some of these figures to uh, 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 considered to be wise, sort of a, by cultural consensus. When you think about Socrates, he was put to death by uh, his society in ancient Greece. Um, if you accept that people like uh, Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King uh, 
are wise. They clearly were adversarial to their uh, societies, at least over particular issues of social justice. Um, Montaigne talked about this. Uh, you know, he said basically, if you want to be wise, you should do it in a closet and not make a public uh, show of it because it's only going to bring you to grief. Um, so there's there's a there's a kind of, and Confucius also um, was kind of I, I won't say exiled or ostracized, but had a very difficult time kind of integrating himself into his society at the time that he was uh, um, teaching, and the, it's the teaching that got passed down later, but uh, uh, was looking for a job, some sort of uh, gainful employment, really with a kind of government uh, position at that time in feudal uh, China, and uh, was unable to do it. So there, there's this recurring theme of at least certain people that we consider wise having uh, difficulty integrating with their society, and in part because they're adversarial to some of the prevailing ideas of those societies. Um, <clears throat> uh, I, I love this idea of Montaigne. You mentioned this using literature as a scientific tool in the essays. That's just fascinating. Well, I you know, kind of likened it to the you know the Galilean invention of the telescope. I mean, he used the the pen as this digging tool to really investigate a lot of qualities that we associate with wisdom. He talks about anger. He talks about emotional regulation. He talks about uh, you know social justice, uh, and all of it wrapped around this mission of self-examination, uh, self-reflection, observation, uh, leading to decisions, judgments actions, that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a fantastic exercise in wisdom that Montaigne uh, undertook. And, and it interests me, too, that the way you describe the Buddha, be, or what he described, cognitive and emotional qualities that be, could be reductively parsed and studied by science. Now, that is a big deal. Well, you know, um, again, I write about science. That's what I've done for 30 years. Um, and if you write about science, you know that the the kind of philosophical approach to solving or investigating scientific problems is what's called reductionism, where you take a big idea and you kind of reduce it to its component parts uh, so that you can do tractable uh, experiments that will give you some sort of answer. Um, and so in a kind of metaphoric sense... Um, I took these these large ideas that circled around wisdom and kind of reduced them to these elements that I then sort of referred to as the neural pillars of wisdom. Um, they were things like, uh, again, emotion regulation, patience, or this idea of delayed gratification, um, uh, altruism, and some of the punishments that are associated with altruism, uh, uh, moral judgment, um, compassion, uh, which is an intrinsic part of Buddhism, uh, then as well as now. Uh, and then I started go looking around to see if there's any science attached to these. And lo and behold, there was a lot of science attached to these various areas. Yeah, I, I love these eight pillars of, of wisdom. Um, and we have uh, dealing with uncertainty, which is something that, that you did quite well. Let, let's talk about the first one, I, I think, because that's a... a which you call uh, emotional regulation. This is, you know, I think in the Stephen King novel I just read, it said, you know, control your anger or it will control you. Yes. Um, emotion, you know, it's, again, this is very interesting um, for people who think wisdom is, is too... Uh, fuzzy an idea to study. Uh, think about the study of emotion. Uh, about 20 years ago, uh, the notion that neuroscientists could uh, could approach the topic of emotion, much could agree on what it meant, much less study it um, empirically, um, was a little bit dodgy. I mean, it was one of these big ideas that seemed too, too uh, difficult to harness. Um, but in fact, emotion has become central to a lot of our understanding of how our minds work. There's clearly uh, emotional centers of the brain that are sort of acting in in unconscious or subconscious ways and prodding us in particular directions, uh, seeking instant uh, gratification or responding quickly in terms of anger, fight or flight re responses. Um, but, and it's now started to become studied in a kind of systematic way. One of the things... Uh, uh, that really kind of got me into this from the point of view of the story, the initial story for the New York Times Magazine uh, was some work that was done at Stanford by uh, Laura Carstensen and her colleagues um, where they were looking at differences in how um, older and younger people process emotion. Um, they did this through standard psychological questionnaire testing, but they also did it through uh, brain scanning with uh, functional MRI imaging uh, experiments. 
and they continue to follow the same group of people as they get older. Uh, and, and the conclusion that they reach, and the study is still going, uh, is still ongoing. Uh, I think it started in 1991 or 93. Um, so it's been going on almost 20 years. Uh, what they've found is that older people process uh, emotion in a much more even-handed way than young people. What do I mean by even-handed? Um, if you look at either from the point of view of psychological measures or by these brain scanning measures, it seems like younger people hold on to negative um, information, negative knowledge, negative experiences longer than older adults. Older adults, on average, seem to reset emotionally. They seem to show a little bit more emotional resilience in, in the face of upset or adversity. Um, and what's interesting about this work, uh, in a larger sense, is that it's one of the few studies in neuroscience that's actually comparing older and younger people. Most of the studies that most of your listeners probably read about in the newspapers or on the web about brain studies showing this and that are confined to 20-year-old college students from a very narrow socioeconomic band. So the 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 breadth of, of um, brain material they're working with is actually quite narrow. And this is the Stanford study is interesting for me, particularly because it's comparing two different age cohorts, two different age groups, and, and showing these differences that suggest there is a change over the course of a lifetime. Well, one of the things that's interesting is that, uh, that you talk about is that our approach to age has always been that it's a degradation, that, and that's, that's changing now, isn't it? Well, this whole field, this whole the psychological research into wisdom began in the 1970s with this, uh, out of gerontology or gerontological psychology, with the notion that all we've heard about in terms of old age is, again, physical and mental cognitive decline. Um, and a number of people, a few people, started to say, why don't we look and see if we can't find something that's positive about this? There was a group at the University of Southern California uh, led by a very prominent psychologist named James Buren. Um, there was a group, uh, the Sternberg Group in, at Yale. Uh, there was a group led by a very prominent psychologist in Europe named Paul Baltus, who was based at the Max Planck Institute uh, for Human Development in Berlin, uh, where they actually mounted something called the Berlin Wisdom Project in the 1980s, which grew grew out of the study of uh, an aging population there, and then they decided, let's see if we can find what the correlates of uh, wise behavior might be in this particular population. So that all started in the 1970s. And there was also uh, someone in James Beeren's lab who's actually the first person who actually published any kind of empirical data on wisdom named Vivian Clayton, um, who really deserves credit for being kind of the pioneer to getting the whole ball rolling. She's the, the godmother of, of wisdom she science, is. isn't she? <laughs> exactly. Um, this uh, aging thing, it kind of bases on this, and, and this crops up again and again on time horizons. And, and time perceptions come out throughout all of these emotional pillars or neural pillars, don't they? They do. Um, however, I, I would just make as an initial observation, almost no contemporary neuroscience that I'm aware of takes time into account very much, even though it's such an important quality in our lives, uh, probably because as far as we know, we're probably the only creatures that are aware of our own mortality and so that we have this sense of time that's probably different from uh, uh, almost every other living creature on Earth. So uh, not to take account of that is actually kind of interesting if you think of a limitation in terms of neuroscience. Um, but this notion that Paul Baltus made the point that uh, people, there's kind of like a, I call it kind of a temporal continental divide in people's lives where uh, for the earlier part of your life, you're looking back from the time you were born, but at a certain point you start looking forward to the time you're going to die and that this really changes your emotional and cognitive perception and your behavior and how you view goals, what's important to you, all these issues that, that I've already talked about that are important to wisdom. Um, so that's a really important component in all this. And the, again, the standard group and also other researchers, um, primarily cognitive psychologists, have made the point that older people seem to sort of uh, adjust uh, their emotional attachments to what's important to them. It really is their emotional relationships and how to how to keep sustain those and keep them going and not so much acquiring new knowledge. Um, most of them have acquired quite a bit of knowledge, although they can continue to acquire some. But uh, it's the quality of the emotional relationships that seem to matter more, and then that 
is feeds into this notion of being able to um, maintain a kind of even-keeled, rebounding, resilient kind of uh, approach to problems that come up in everybody's lives. You just said the word resilience, and you, in the uh, portion on emotional regulation, you distinguish between resilience and patience. Well, um, resilience is, well, patience I think of as sort of out, uh, waiting for, knowing what's a goal that needs to be waited for, a delayed gratification. I make the distinction in the case of Job, actually. That's mm-hmm. that's the primary example where um, we often think of Job as a parable of patience. Um, and in my reading, and I did go back and read the Bible, um, I think Job is a, really a story about resilience because he's in this situation where he's terribly mistreated. His friends abandon him. They they, they blame the victim essentially. These these awful events, like uh, he, he has these scabs all over his body, and his family is wiped out, and his livestock is wiped out, and all these horrible events happen from a vengeful God. Um, and it's not that he's patient. In fact, he says, uh, "Why shouldn't I be impatient?" Um, but he just keeps rebounding from this, and he keeps asserting his value as, a, as an individual, um, as a, a God-fearing uh, citizen, uh, and he uh, just keeps coming back. And so I think of it much more as a story about res- emotional resilience, that despite all these setbacks, he he's always climbs back into the ring for another round with God. Uh, so that's the distinction I make between patience and resilience. He's good at coping. And he's very good at coping because uh, uh, he was he was tested in a way few of us have been tested. You know, Vivian Clayton makes a really uh, interesting uh, uh, observation, I believe, about uh, the parable of original sin in, in Adam and Eve, which I think is just a, really a great. T- tell us about that. Well, this is the the, the verb uh, to. Uh, uh, the, there are translations of the original mm-hmm. Hebrew of uh, the the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Uh, which suggests that by eating the apple, um, uh, the verb is uh, um, uh, to look at, I should probably look it up in the book to get the wording precisely, but, but the idea is that you look at something and you gain wisdom. That's, that's actually one of the Hebrew translations of the verb that appears in the Hebrew Bible. It's not the usual translation, but I thought it was, it's, it was a footnote um, in, in this recent translation of the five books of Moses. Uh, by Robert Alter, and I was really struck by that footnote because this, this, there's a both a price, but a, a benefit to seeing things clearly, and seeing things clearly uh, brings wisdom, but also at this price of seeing human nature perhaps too clearly with all the the uh, uh, the downside of that as well. Well, the the upshot of the Garden in Eden is that we got the good, we got the. Uh, knowledge we needed to deal with the real world because we weren't going to be living in that Garden of Eden forever. <laughs> That's exactly right. And that, and I think uh, in all the definitions of wisdom, certainly from the psychological school, there's this acknowledgement that um, it's not simply book knowledge, uh, a store of book knowledge that contributes to wisdom, but also this knowledge about human nature, how humans act and how they tend to act. And uh, again, responding to that on the basis of that kind of knowledge. Now, uh, this kind of gets us to this idea of knowing what's important, and that's uh, th- that functions on two really different levels in this book. On one hand, you talk about knowing what's important as an aspect of wisdom, but it's also an aspect of this book. And you made a bunch of choices in this book as well as we're ma- we make choices every day. So talk about that kind of, um, I guess, maybe did you have a dualistic experience of this book? Um Writing about wisdom and and going looking at the plumbing, but seeing that plumbing echoed in your in your writing. Um, I guess so. I mean, I the thinking about the plumbing, I guess, was a, a, a okay simply because I also understood that the plumbing is not all worked out yet. So, <laughs> so I didn't feel like there was anything deterministic about what I was necessarily deterministic about um, what I was finding, but. Um, what I found fascinating, you know, there's been a ton of stuff written about decision making and choice recently, um, and both in book and magazine form. You know, decision science and neuroeconomics has become a really big field, and a lot of uh, very popular books have come out about it. 
Um, it struck me, however, and as they're working through this neurological uh, plumbing thing, um, it struck me that what's the really interesting part of this, and where I think the wisdom uh, aspect is, is upstream of this neurological mechanism for decision making, which establishes the value of the various choices. And there are a lot of things that go into it, and there's a lot that neuroscience doesn't understand about that process now. But how one attaches value neurologically to these choices that we're confronted with is a really interesting, I mean, personal history, memory, experiences, emotion. Uh, there's a, f- a flood of all these things kind of funneling into the, uh, the, this uh, making value, um, neurological value in the brain, which is a, a specific scientific way uh, that's an analogy to our deciding what's important. Uh, so that's a really interesting process that I think the surface is just being scratched on right now. Um, when we talk about uh, wisdom, we also think uh, an important aspect, and this is one of your eight neural pillars, is moral reasoning. So what parts of our brain are lighting up when we're, when we're engaging in moral reasoning, and, and how do you conduct re- research into that? Well, the, there's a really interesting um, classical classical as of maybe 30 years, problem in psychology called the trolley problem. You may have encountered it, or I'm sure some of your um, listeners may have uh, heard about this. Um, The basic idea is that you're told that a a trolley is uh, streaming out of control, going down the track. There are five workers that are on the track, don't know that it's coming. Um, You have the power to switch it to a siding where it will just kill one person or worker over there, but it will spare five people. Um, And so this is a moral dilemma that people work through. Um, you know, is it worth killing one person to spare five lives? Uh, and then the the variation on that theme is what's called the footbridge problem, where there's a footbridge that goes over the track, the same scenario, there's the five workers on one track, one worker on the siding, but in order to derail the... Uh, the uh, to spare the five workers, you have to throw someone who's standing next to you off the footbridge into the path of the trolley to derail it. Um, and you can make various uh, uh, observations about how, how actually reasonable that scenario is, but it's, it's kind of a thought experiment. But they actually put people in um, functional MRI machines to see what their brains are doing when they confront this dilemma, uh, this moral dilemma, what do I do? Uh, and they find that people... Uh, are much less reluctant to kill one person to save five people when they actually have to be the agents of killing the one person as opposed to doing it in a more detached manner where they're simply flipping the switch and the and the train is going in a different direction. Um, the reluctance to do that uh, seems to be driven by a, a, the emotional part of the brain, uh, which probably... Um, it has been shaped by social cooperation to understand that it's not a good thing to harm a fellow nearby human being. And, and what the Josh Green, who's the, one of the scientists who does this, uh, uh, refers to as an up-close and personal way. Um, and a, a more utilitarian approach, which would be that on balance, saving five lives is worth the cost of one life, uh, it seems to be much more rooted in the cognitive prefrontal cortex part of our brain. So that there's, uh, and this has been re- uh, observed in these experiments, that there's this kind of this conversation and battle going between these two different parts of the brain to how they respond depending on how the situation is shaped. And one of the things that's interesting to me is what you think, what you say is that emotion always thinks that it has the right decision to hand instantaneously, doesn't yeah. it? Uh, the interesting thing about emotion is, A, it's often its impulses are unconscious, so we're not even aware of them. And two, it, they seem to occur much quicker than the cognitive part of the gra- brain, which is um, slower, but you know, literally more thoughtful. Uh, and so I think one of the both contradictions or challenges of wisdom is not that the emotional brain is wiser than the cognitive brain or the vice versa, um, which when you think about it is actually a, a dichotomy that was part of ancient philosophy really between reason and passion. It's, a, it's kind of a reinvention of that on, on neurological landscape now. Um, 
But the real trick is deciding when emotion is counseling, giving wise counsel, or when it's uh, giving you a bum steer. And likewise for cognitive. You know, there are times when, when deliberation and cog- uh, cognitive input top down uh, can be very helpful, particularly when you're trying to, you know, delay immediate impulse and, and perhaps achieve a larger but more distant goal. Um, but it also may be harmful in certain situations. So the trick, the real great difficulty, is trying to figure out which serves you best in which particular situation. And I think that's why there are so few people who are truly wise. <laughs> uh, I just talked to, to Karen Armstrong not, not too long ago, mm-hmm. a- and her book was all about compassion. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to read about it in your book from the scientific perspective. And the, the, so uh, one of the things you talk about there is, is the idea of the discovery um, <clears throat> of some very interesting uh, neurons by Vittorio Galisi. Tell us about his discovery, how that happened. Okay, well, this is the mirror neuron story, and this happened about 15 years, began to unfold about 15 uh, years ago. And basically, um, it, these are experiments that were conducted on um, uh, uh, primates. Uh, this was in a laboratory in, in Italy. Um, and the animal had a, an electrode implanted in a motor neuron in the brain. Um, and uh, motor neurons, of course, control movement. So uh, uh, they weren't actually doing an experiment at this time, but the neuron was wired and the, they, you know, they kind of run them through an amplifier so you can actually hear crackles of ac- neural activity when these neurons are firing. So the, the uh, primate, the monkey, was not moving, but it watch, was watching somebody else doing something. And there, there's actually two versions of this. They're either eating a peanut or eating ice cream or something. But the part of the, the monkey that was observing the other person, sympathetically, these neurons fired, even though they weren't actually um, engaged in action, but rather were using the same neurons that the people who were doing the actions would have used. So you have this... this neuronal mirror activity simply by watching or sometimes even hearing uh, activity in another person. Uh, Your own neurons at some level are responding. uh, You know, if it's lifting a a glass of water, then the the neurons that would be involved in that task would similarly fire in the observing uh, creature, the the primate, and we assume the the human. So it's this almost this built-in system that suggests empathy, both observation, empathy, compassion, um, experiencing the literally the actions of another uh, uh, being, sentient being, um, and possibly probably the emotions as well. And you give a great uh, definition of, of wisdom. Uh, the as you say, our, our compassion. Uh, it's not easy to define. It. And you you give the uh, Potter Stewart uh, thing. You, don't know what it is, but you, you know, know it when you see it. Yes. Yeah, Potter Stewart famously said that about pornography, but I think that's true of compassion and wisdom in general. It's very hard to define, but you know it when you see it. Um, the other thing about compassion that's very interesting is people. Um, this actually came up in a conver- uh, when I was giving a talk just a couple of days ago. Someone made the point: well, compassion seems to be a very a passive um, um, emotion or a passive trait. Um, but not the way it's being defined, uh, both uh, through Buddhism, but also through neuroscience now. Um, they've been doing a series of experiments on the brains of Buddhist monks at the University of Wisconsin, for example. And they fly these monks in, they engage in compassion meditation, and they're measuring their brain and also doing brain scans as they're doing this. And what they've discovered is that there are kind of three components to the compassion as it's practiced by these Buddhists and their expert practitioners. I mean, these are you know, like measuring muscle mass in an athlete, you know, an Olympic athlete, measuring brain activity in a, a, a expert meditator uh, has the same kind of quality. I mean, you can analogize to that advanced skill set, and then you look at the physiology and see how it's different. Um, they've identified three components of compassion. One is is uh, simply perceiving uh, another person's suffering or pain. And it, it's it's beyond that because it's almost understanding the point of view, the thought process, the feeling of another person, which you can see is a very important component um, in wisdom just in terms of understanding what somebody else is thinking. Um, there's a second part of it where you, you yourself feel that. This is kind of like the mirror neuron story a little bit, that in perceiving suffering in another person somatically, 
in your body, embodied in some way, is that feeling in yourself. And then the third part of it, and this is a very important and, and uh, kind of central element of, of the Buddhist notion of compassion, is that you want to try to do something to relieve the suffering. So there's an action component to this. Um, and now when they've done these brain uh, uh, experiments and, and studied the monks, they've kind of started to work out uh, a circuitry in the brain. And there's particular regions that seem to be involved in each one of these three subcomponents that go from perception of another person's suffering to feeling it at some level, to uh, parts of the brain that actually motivate action and behavior. So they see this skein of, of circuitry actually in place. Now this is still uh, tentative and it's still, this is very recent work, so it's, it's, uh, the, the picture is still being filled out. But I think it's really interesting that it, the compassion in the traditional Buddhist sense has always been wedded to action. And that when you look at it neurologically, you see a circuitry that leads to the parts of the brain that control action. That's just fascinating. Uh, these mirror neurons are, I mean, it, it, it really essentially, essentially suggests that we're hardwired for compassion in some way, aren't we? That we actually can feel, you know, it's, it's almost like in identifying with the bodily motions and therefore probably the bodily emotion, emotions of another person, if we're paying attention. Um, uh, Dr. Galazi, Victoria Galazi, who's involved in the initial work, sometimes refers to um, uh, people who don't have this capacity or this compassion is kind of autistic in the sense that they don't feel other people's emotions in a, in a sense. So uh, mirror neurons are really an important uh, vehicle for each of us. And we're social animals. Uh, there's a lot of uh, social cooperation involved in wisdom. It's a way for us uh, interacting on an uh, organism-to-organism level. We're aware of what the other person is doing, thinking, how they're moving, and how that may re relate to how they feel. Um, you talk a little bit about humility, and talk, one of the things that this suggests and that how important in throughout this book, in your writing, and you do this very well, making clear the definitions. This book, I think the real virtue of this book, is this gets us to, this. the book itself is, a, is like one of the Montaigne essays in terms of uh, allowing us to linguistically, reductively, break wisdom down into its components and then break those components down into separate components. And then you, by virtue of that, you tie each of those to different regions of the brain. Yeah. The, the, in the case of humility, I think that probably less, there's less known about brain activity in that than almost any of the other ones. What's interesting to me about humility, however, is it also... Um, again, it gets plays ba uh, back into this how you acquire knowledge. If you're open to acquiring knowledge, if you're also open to the to the possibility or the likelihood that your uh, your knowledge is finite or incomplete or limited, um, the paradox of humility is really interesting. And I talk about this a lot in terms of Gandhi because uh, this is someone who managed to generate and inspire a, really a mass movement in India, in part on the basis of his humble behavior, the way he dressed, um, uh, you know, wearing the loincloth, which he decided to do because he had asked uh, uh, citizens in, in India not to buy the imported uh, woolen or, or uh, uh, textile goods that were associated with the British rule. And so he felt he had to, you know, reflect that in his own dress and behavior. Um, and at the same point, here's someone who had just the heart of a lion and just would not be uh, um, thwarted, blocked, or in any way uh, uh, delayed from reaching the school of social justice that was so much, uh, was so important to him. So you have this notion of humility um, being packaged inside an incredible strength of character, an incredible strength of heart that kept going, and it's not meek. Uh, so again, just as compassion is not passive, it's actually active. Humility is not necessarily passive, but it also is a it can envelop and include really tremendously courageous action. And this kind of pairing of opposites also happens in altruism because you talk a lot about the importance of punishments in altruism, which is just came out of left field for me. But the way you express it, it makes perfect sense. Well, it's it become again. This is another thing that's that's grown out of the science in the last uh, ten or fifteen years, and. Uh, in experiments that are kind of done in these group settings where they have people perform as groups um, have under a certain set of rules, they discover that um, 
uh, certain people are rule breakers. Certain people, according to the way the game is set up, and these are sort of uh, game theory type games, um, people who don't contribute to the common good, either monetarily or uh, by their actions, um, are perceived by others as getting away with something that's unfair. There's a part of the brain that seems to be uh, extremely uh, attentive to kind of social unfairness. Um, and this seems to motivate uh, a kind of punitive response. And so, and so there are these experiments where people are willing to punish other members of the group at their own expense, which is what altruism is, you know, self-sacrifice for the greater good of the group to punish the rule breakers uh, with the thought that this will uh, likely improve the odds of the success of the group at large. Um, social neuroscience is all about how people interact uh, in groups to promote the, the welfare of the group at large, and that's obviously become a really important part of evolutionary theory as well. So uh, it's being explored in this setting, and it's, it's really interesting in terms of how the brain reacts to these, uh, the per- perception of rules being broken or cheaters. Well, and that, and that also explains why all these foundational texts, the, the, you describe the, the book of Proverbs as a self-help manual and why we have a bunch of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. It's, it's all uh, these kind of prescriptive uh, manuals to keep people in line with the understanding if there are too many rule breakers, the whole thing breaks down. And if you think about it, and um, some people have, it hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but you can see the probable evolutionary origins in this in a situation of uh, sharing food very early on in human evolutionary history, you know, sharing shelter, sharing proximity to fire for warmth, um, that for the whole group, the whole community survived, people had to to share uh, in order to uh, to survive as a group. And anyone who threatened that um put the entire, uh, anyone who broke the rules put the entire group at risk. And this also, and you point this out gently, has <clears throat> immediate current political implications. Well, it's, uh, you've, altruism, you don't see a lot of rampant altruism right now. <laughs> Let's put it that way. There seems to be a, the, I mean, our politics have become so obviously polarized, but also uh, so, uh, much less altruistic in terms of sacrifice for the for the good of the group um, there's not a lot of self-sacrifice at all in terms of uh, the, our, our politics the way they seem to play out now so um, but it's interesting in these experiments to see that these these model imaginary scientifically uh, created societies for the in the purpose of these experiments seem to do much better when altruism is allowed to play and also punishment. <laughs> And, and in order to get past all these uh, current political shenanigans, we're going to have to exercise one of your other eight pillars of neural wisdom, patience. Uh, patience is an enormously difficult virtue. And I say that as a parent who has almost daily experience in failing to be patient or tr- trying to be more patient than I am. Um, Patients, again, this is just an area that's where there's just started to be some uh, neuroscience attached to it, and this idea of uh, perhaps um, not taking an immediate reward might be smaller uh, in order to wait a little while and get a larger reward. These are done as kind of monetary experiments where people may be offered $20 now or $40 uh, in two weeks or something like that. And you can actually see, again, um, activity in the brain. It seems to increase in the cognitive, the sort of uh, planning, future thinking part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, um, when people are inclined to wait for the greater reward. Um, so these are uh, important skills. Um, there's a scientist at um, Princeton University named Jonathan Cohen who's made the point that a lot of our kind of training programs or organized training programs for doctors, for soldiers, um, are really kind of uh, driven by the prefrontal cortex um, and it, it, with the thought that it's kind of overcoming what we, uh, what we know to be the emotional impulse. In the case of doctors, it might be you're sort of recoiling uh, at the sight of, of blood, uh, human injury, and that sort of thing. If, if the emotions held sway for that particular population, they would be unable to do what they need to do, which is to actually heal and, and uh, um, cure, if possible, people. So the training of doctors 
Doctors is in part designed to overcome, is a cognitively driven program to overcome the natural and reasonable emotional reaction. And just as soldiers are taught basically to accept uh, physical, vi- interpersonal physical violence, um, which, at, which at some level there must be some uh, emotional recoil from in, in, the, in the interests of the military. You know, one of the things, and this comes up especially in patients because of this kind of delayed gratification is that throughout a lot of these studies, um, it seems to me that there's a, a an economic perception that's that is overlaid on on the science. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, when I look out I, at the books being written today, uh, just fiction. If I look out at fiction, I, I'm tempted to say there's now you have the mystery genre, you have the science fiction genre, you have the horror genre, and you have the economic genre. <laughs> and, and I think that that speaks to a certain um, uh, perception, mode of perception, and that happens a lot in, in this uh, neuroscience, doesn't it? Well, in, the, in the, the, you know, this field of neuroeconomics where people make economic choices, that's become a, a main part of brain science now, and it's very important to flip what you just said, um, it, and to get back to patience a little bit. Um, I talk a lot of, in, in the chapter on patients about willpower. And one of the longstanding um, examples in psychology of kind of how, how this plays out is actually the story of Odysseus sailing past the island of the sirens. Um, as a kind of uh, analogy to the cognitive strategies we have to take to overcome the sort of immediate impulses that, that uh, uh, guide impatient as opposed to patient behavior. Um, and in the case of Odysseus, and in fact there are literally books that have been written and titled about you know, the Odysseus problem because in psychology because it, it really captures this this dilemma, which is um, you know that you you have a long-term goal, which is really important. In the case of Odysseus, it's to sail home and return to his family and his wife and children. Um, the short-term goal is to hear the sirens uh, song because it's it's so beautiful and it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to hear that even though you know that that will therefore sabotage your long term goals. So what do you do about this? Well, in the case of Odysseus, of course, he devises this strategy, a cognitive strategy, forward thinking, because he knows it based on his understanding of himself is that he will be tied to the mast of the ship, and his crew will place uh, beeswax in their ears so they don't hear the song of the sirens, and the, and uh, Odysseus will, in a sense, get to have his cake and eat it too because they'll hear the sirens but also be able to get home and achieve his long-term goal. But the idea is, um, in a more psychological sense, is that you have to create uh, in willpower. George Ainsley, who's who's one of the leading theorists of uh, willpower, you have to create these cognitive strategies to overcome what you know to be your kind of short-term impulsive weaknesses to respond to these very alluring possibilities. And um, in modern society, those alluring possibilities are fattening foods, uh, uh, cigarettes, uh, all the things we know we shouldn't do, but we nonetheless find irresistible in the moment. Um. We live in a world where change is coming at an ever-accelerating pace, and so the importance of dealing with uncertainty is is increasingly uh, it's increasingly important every single day. More each day that follows, we have more uncertainty. <clears throat> you talk about uh, two ways: exploitation versus exploration. Yeah, it, it, there was an interesting set of experiments that were done. These were with animals, uh, where they would uh, change the environmental. Uh, situation, basically where they could find food or water, uh, and then sort of watch how the the animals responded. And there's uh, there's there's one tactic is where you sort of stick with a strategy that that continues to work, um, which is exploitation. And exploration is when you realize that a strategy is no longer working, you have to try something different. I and mean, these are this is a, a, in, a in an experiment a very limited. Uh, variation of possibility in terms of whether you stick with your old strategy, change to your new one. Um, but in reality, um, we confront situations like this all the time. Um, one of the interesting uh, suggestions that came out of some of those experiments that the more um, habitual the activity of the animal is, the harder it is to break out of that and change. So the more, uh, you know, to extrapolate from that, uh, perhaps a little bit dangerously, but the more habit-driven we are, it suggests that we're probably less flexible and less adjustable when circumstances change. Now, <clears throat> there are many ways we can make ourselves wise. Uh, talk about, you talk about the uh, 
the adversity in in youth as as doesn't it doesn't have to scar us for life, does it? Well, it you know this all came out of uh, again this uh, Berlin group who uh, was curious to see what the origins of wisdom were. You know where where you, one began to acquire wisdom, and so they began looking at older people, obviously. Um, but they did a number of surveys, and they concluded that wisdom actually the seeds of wisdom seemed to occur much earlier than old age. Um, and one of the factors that seems to be related to this is early exposure to adversity. Now, there's been some, and it seems to be related to this whole issue of emotional regulation and basically being resilient and being able to reset after emotional setback. There was a very interesting experiment done at Stanford a couple of years ago where they took two sets of monkeys. It's in in animal study, but they took two sets of monkeys, one of which uh, from birth on, um, the moment they reached uh, weaning, they allowed one group to simply stay with their mothers, stay in their normal cages. Everything was sort of the way it uh, was comfortable for them, and there was no uh, exposure to uh, adversity. Uh, in the second group, they periodically removed them from their mothers, the the, the uh, children, the newborns. Um, they occasionally exposed them to novel environments that they had not ex- uh, uh, been exposed to before, uh, this sort of change environment. Um, and then and they called this a stress inoculation, as if it was kind of a vaccine against stress. They followed these monkeys for over a year. Um, when they exposed them to a deliberately frustrating um, kind of laboratory task at around age one, uh, the monkeys that had not been previously exposed to stress were much more easily frustrated and took much longer to solve the task. The monkeys that had been exposed to stress uh, were cognitively able to control their emotions, not get as frustrated, and solve the task quicker. Uh, And it was a task that's specifically designed for cognitive uh, solution. Uh, when they looked at the brains of these monkeys, they found that the ones that had been exposed to adversity and stress a little bit earlier had had the stress inoculation, the prefrontal cortex, again, this uh, this top-down future planning part of the brain, um, uh, was larger in the stressed monkeys. Um, it's only a single study, but it's a very interesting suggestion that that moderate stress, you know, I wouldn't want to overstate it, but perhaps moderate stress or adversity early in life uh, somehow can, may contribute to sort of emotional equilibrium that serves one later on. And interestingly, um, there are a number of philosophers and founders of religions, uh, the world's religions uh, and philosophies who have a history of early uh, adversity in their own lives. And Aristotle became an orphan, um, had a speech impediment, uh, the Buddha lost uh, his mother, uh, at least by some accounts, at age seven days. Uh, Confucius's father died when he was three. Abraham Lincoln's mother died when he was nine, and so on. There's a, there's a thread that kind of runs anecdotally through a lot of very prominent figures in philosophy and in religion uh, where early adversity uh, is seems uh, not to have thwarted but instead somehow enriched their experience. Uh, flipping to the other side, you talk about um, as we get older, how we can get wiser. One of the things that interested me and is is what you said about Freud, which is that his questions are more valuable than maybe his answers. And I think this suggests we're taking another look at Freud, not so much as a scientist, but maybe as a as a literary uh, figure. Well, a literary figure. I, 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 George Angeley made the point that uh, you know he says if if Freud was a stock, now is the time to buy. <laughs> um, and the point he was making is that. Um, uh, even though the the whole sh- uh, frame uh, by which Freud explained human behavior and human psychology may not seem uh, quite as persuasive now as it did before, the 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 kind of ideas that he talked about um, in terms of these unconscious urges and and sort of. Um, adjusting to adaptive, even uh, unconscious adaptive behaviors that allow people to, to persist and overcome setback and adversity, um, they do find resonance in some more recent studies. I, I talk about this famous uh, study of uh, Harvard sophomores that began in the 1940s, actually, and they kept following these men. Really, they're, they're continuing to follow them to, uh, today. Um, uh, it was actually the subject of an article in The Atlantic a, a year or so ago. Um, there were a lot of strategies um, uh, uh, adopted by a number of these men who seemed to lead reasonably successful lives that really kind of mirrored some of the Freudian ideas of really a century earlier. Um, 
it, it sounds kind of old-fashioned to, to use the, the Freudian frame to look at these lives, but uh, um, and, and they're so well-documented, they really are described in almost novelistic detail, just uh, the decisions they made, whether they were happy at the end of it, whether they had problems like drinking or uh, marriages that uh, broke up or that sort of thing. Um, but you see this this pageant of adaptive behavior literally over the course of decades. Um, and some people manage to, to get more sophisticated and mature adaptations and uh, seem to lead reasonably successful lives. And others simply got stuck in kind of an earlier and immature uh, reactions to these, these challenges and really ended up in kind of unhappy lives. Um, as a as a writer, a science writer, you're used to dealing with facts and figures and the verifiable. Attacking wisdom is precisely almost the opposite. <laughs> Talk about as a writer, you know, right putting this book together. Do you, did you feel wiser? <laughs> I felt uh, I I did feel um, again grateful for the opportunity just to be thinking about these things every day because I I what it does is it again forces you to stop and think. Excuse me, and I think the stopping is as important as the thinking. In other words, to kind of tune out a lot of other stuff that we um, inevitably are distracted by in our daily lives, and just sort of think about things a little bit. I found myself always asking myself, um, you know, especially when minor, even minor daily problems come up, what would be the wise thing to do here? Now, that's not to suggest that I always came up with a wise answer, but but by asking that question and kind of slowing down the process of dealing with a problem, even a little bit, I found to be very helpful. And um, I think reading about wisdom, thinking about wisdom, possibly reading this book would help people in their own lives because we all bring different, you know, criteria and experiences and lifetime stores of knowledge to to these things. But um, I think just tapping into that a little bit more, giving oneself time to tap into um, these stores that we all carry around with this is actually a very, very useful uh, practice. And I was very grateful just for the experience of writing the book to be thinking about these things on a regular basis. Um, And I say that knowing that, you know, none of us ultimately ever achieve wisdom in a, you know, capital W sense, but it can bring us a step closer to be maybe acting wiser in a small W way every day. I've been speaking with Stephen Hall. His new book is Wisdom from Philosophy to Neuroscience. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. My pleasure being here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.